Shakespeare plays have, on average, about four sizable female characters and about a dozen written for men. When Shakespeare was alive and writing for the London stage, all the roles were played by men. Beginning in the 18th century, some of the most famous actresses took on the challenge of playing Shakespeare's leading men, reinventing them in exciting new ways. Today, some of the world's leading classical theater companies are producing all-female versions of Shakespeare's plays. We're here to explore the theme of reinvention, how to reinvent the role of gender in Shakespeare's plays. From Michigan State University's Department of Theater, I'm Derek McNish, Assistant Professor and Director of the Undergraduate Actor Training Program. This is Syllable of Recorded Time, where we put Shakespeare in context for today's audience. This season, we're performing William Shakespeare's 1623 play, The Winter's Tale, at MSU's Abrams Planetarium and at Michigan High Schools. This is an all-female production. Let me introduce our hosts today, Taylor McPhail and Heidi Covina. I'm Taylor McPhail, dramaturg for our production of The Winter's Tale at Michigan State University. I'm a theater major here focusing on playwriting. And I'm Heidi Covina, an actor, and I'll be playing the roles of Paulina and Dorcas in the show. We're here with Dr. Jyotsana Singh, professor of Renaissance literature here at MSU. Jyotsana teaches and researches early modern literature and culture, colonial history, travel writing, post-colonial theory, early modern histories of Islam, and gender and race studies. Her book, The Wayward Sisters, Shakespeare and Feminist Politics, co-authored with Dimna Callahan and Lorraine Helms, addresses feminist issues and the role of women in Shakespeare's plays, especially given there were no women playing female parts on the English stage at the time. Jotsna, welcome. You're currently on sabbatical for the year, so thank you for joining us. Would you tell our listeners what a sabbatical is and what you're doing with this time? Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm a big fan of the theater department, and I love Shakespeare, so I'm happy to talk about The Winter's Tale. All full-time academics get leave for a semester every six years for completing research projects, which is our sabbatical. I was a little wayward and took my sabbatical for a full year on reduced salary. And so my research projects took me to the British Library in London, and now I'm heading to Oxford University as a fellow where I'll do research in the Bodleian Library. I have two research projects. One is on English representations of non-Western people, and the other one is on travel narratives of John Hawkins, the first slave trader. But I'm also giving talks in various universities on global Shakespeare. That's something I'm interested in, looking at cross-cultural productions of Shakespeare and gender and race. So that's what I'm doing, and my sabbatical is ending in a few months. Well, that's awesome. We're very lucky to have you here today while you're on sabbatical. Um, our first question for you about The Winter's Tale is, what do you think audiences should know before reading or seeing the show? Uh, you know, many people, as we know, are familiar with Shakespeare's tragedies like Hamlet or Macbeth or his comedies like A Midsummer Night's Dream and Twelfth Night, which make them have certain expectations of Shakespeare's play. The Winter's Tale was among Shakespeare's last plays, all of similar mixed genre, and these were called the romances. The play is also different from tragedies in that it ends on a note of reconciliation and redemption with a seeming miracle through the intervention of a godlike figure. So this is a very different and distinct experience from other Shakespeare comedies, tragedies, and histories that people may be familiar with. Your approach to Shakespeare is informed by an emphasis on history, and you have an experience in feminist theory and post-colonial theory. For our younger audience, can you explain what theoretical lens would work well in explaining The Winter's Tale and why? 
The Winter's Tale, as you know, is a domestic drama about family relations, but it's a royal family. Feminist criticism helps us to restore women's parts to the play, even though there were no women actors at the time. It liberates heroines from stereotypes. It emphasizes women's relationships with each other. It also makes us recognize that representations of women reflect both cultural attitudes and interrogations of such attitudes. The Winter's Tale focuses on a royal family in the Renaissance, and there was a familiar analogy between the family and the state. Fathers were supposed to rule over obedient families like the king ruled over the state. There were many sermons and conduct books of the period that were patriarchal that stressed the obedience of wives and children. But this play, like Shakespeare's other plays, I think all of Shakespeare's plays, also gives powerful voices to women. And I think that's something we always forget. Hermione and Paulina, for instance, as those of you are acting, are very powerful characters and are given long speeches and articulate clear interrogations of Leontes' misogyny and his decision. So a feminist perspective on the play is very productive because it focuses on gender relations and roles. And we, were, we, are, see, we are able to see the patriarchal underpinnings of Leontes' jealousy and how that plays out. So given the fact that Shakespeare wrote his plays long before the rise of 17th and 18th century colonialism, are contemporary feminist and post-colonial analyses more about the texts and performances of his time or more about the texts and productions during our contemporary times? I think this is a really good question because it addresses the larger issue of why are we reading Shakespeare today? Especially as women, you know, he was writing, you know, 500 years ago, what is he to tell us? And I think first, as I just said, that while there were no women actors on stage, women characters are given distinct and powerful voices, and which is uncanny. Hermione speaks black. Paulina is harsh, though redemptive judge of Leontes and his fit of jealousy. So when feminist critics point this out, they are revealing something about the performances at that time. They are showing us that if sermons and conduct books called for women to be, quote, chaste, silent, and obedient, women were often asked to do that, plays depicted a more complex reality. So we don't know whether Shakespeare was a feminist in our terms, but we do know that the plays enable feminist readings and insights into women's roles, desires, sexuality. And these are of abiding interest to us. Uh, students often ask me, why are we reading Shakespeare? You know, uh, all the women were in a patriarchal society. And I say, no, we, these were not backward women. And that is why these plays can be easily adapted, you know, to different modern settings about jealous women attacking, uh, sorry, jealous men attacking women. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> so in a lot of Shakespeare's works, he wrote about places like Cecilia and Bohemia, which we can assume he never actually visited. How does this affect um, our analysis of the script and how can we then contextualize the exoticism intended for a British Elizabethan-era audience for a Midwestern audience of today? That's, a, again, a really good question. I think one thing all students have to know, that Shakespeare's settings are never realistic. He never went about and say, well, what is the real place? Cecilia and Bohemia here are locales from a prose romance called Pendosto by Robert Greene, which was one of the sources for the play. So they were, you know, 17th century places called Cecilia and Bohemia. But in his plays, settings are always symbolic or em emblematic. 
they are not dramatic reflections of these actual 17th century states, but represent basic conceptual oppositions. So you have the court, you have winter, you have summer, which is the pastoral scenes, you have tragic oppression in the court, you have festivity in the past in pastoral settings. And, uh, and so he draws on this source. And I think we should also think of other Shakespeare plays. You have Athens in Midsummer Night's Dreams, which has nothing to do with classical Athens. It's, it's really about the English countryside. In, in Othello, you have Venice and Cyprus. I mean, these were real cities, but uh, Shakespeare's use of them was very symbolic. In The Tempest, you have Prospero's Island. Uh, it's supposed to be close to Naples and Milan, but there are also references to the Caribbean and the New World. So settings are often anachronistic in his plays. They don't reflect uh, an actual place, though they do have names that would have been familiar to people. So there is a kind of exoticism, uh, but it's symbolic. For instance, in The Tempest, the Caribbean would suggest early colonialism. Uh, so I think... He just took these liberties, and the, the people would be familiar with these names, but they're not looking for the real Cecilia or Bohemia. Yeah, I think that's definitely good to know. Let's talk a little bit more about Leontes now. At the beginning of the show, when he suspects his wife Hermione and his best friend Polixenes of having an affair and a child together, he sort of goes off the rails and becomes accusatory, especially towards his wife. Um, for our audience members who may not know this, Shakespeare began writing his earliest plays during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, but The Winter's Tale was written after her death. She was, of course, a woman in a great position of power that could be seen as threatening to anyone, but especially to a man. Knowing this, do you think it's possible that during the time this was written, perhaps the audience was actually meant to applaud Leontes, whereas today we're more so offended by him? I think while the audience of the time probably could not have unequivocally applauded Leontes because the play doesn't allow that. I think we have to look at the play. He is exposed. You know, he doesn't even believe the oracle. And he is judged by Paulina. And then he himself is redemptive. He, you know, he has remorse. So I don't think the play will have the audiences clapping for him. But more importantly, I think we should also understand that the fear of being cuckolded, which is a theme in many of Shakespeare's plays, was very real fear in the Renaissance in the way that we don't have. Cuckolded means you have children, but they're not yours. So the social and economic implications of adultery at the time were very stark. If his children are illegitimate, then his lineage cannot be protected, especially if he's a king. And in many of Shakespeare's plays, I think in Much Ado, you have a character saying, uh, this is my daughter, or so my wife told me. Uh, and there's always a, there's a shadow. And the other thing, if you, if you see many of Shakespeare's plays, they are missing mothers. The mo there are no mothers. Uh, you know, Desdemona doesn't have a mother, and Hero doesn't have a mother, and Miranda doesn't have a mother. So there, there's a very complicated relationship between women, chastity, adultery. So fathers often question paternity. And there are also stereotypes about women being weak and promiscuous. But the play offers a very complex view of that. But I think we should remember that fear of being cuckolded was a very real thing that men in the audience could relate to. Yeah, and there's this um, implication in the text that women are sexually promiscuous and need to be punished for it, which is pretty common in Renaissance literature. What about this makes this play relevant to audiences today? 
you know, as I said above, that women's chastity was important to the culture. And yet, if you look at Shakespeare's women characters, they express desire very strongly. You have Gertrude, you know, who marries her husband's brother soon after the husband's death. You have Desdemona, who basically proposes to Othello. You know, she takes the sexual initiative. Uh, and Hermione herself, in these opening scenes, is a very sexual creature. That is why Leontes is insecure. You know, she may not be unfaithful, but she's a very erotic woman. Uh, and, and again, so the, these are not real women, but the language they've given is very erotic, and, but not necessarily promiscuous. Uh, but the culture as a whole, for reasons I've already said, feared female sexuality is very powerful. Women's sexuality had to be harnessed to marriage and childbirth. But both the play and the culture offered a complex picture. And I think, and I'll talk a bit more about it, but audiences are dealing with similar issues in many ways about women's sexuality, women's desire, how to deal with it in the Me Too movement. Uh, and are women sexual creatures? Are they initiating sexual contact? I think the issues are very relevant. And this is something I'd like to say to students. Many students don't take Shakespeare because they think it's difficult and they think he's not relevant to our times. And I think he's difficult, but the trouble is well worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I... I'm still not afraid to call myself a feminist, as many people are in the world, you know. So I'm a feminist, and I think Shakespeare speaks to me in his plays. Yeah, me too. I agree. Um, so for our production, we're performing at the Abrams Planetarium here on campus. So the audience will actually be watching a star show that fits with the text while listening to the actors read the lines. We have a cast here made up entirely of women who play multiple characters throughout the show and modulate their voices to fit each character. So do you think it's more digestible for an audience to hear the sort of misogyny Leontes encapsulates come from a woman herself instead of a male actor? I think this is a very good question, but I, in today's world, there are many single gender productions. You have all male uh, productions and male companies, and then you have all female and, and I'll talk, I can talk a little more about gender, but I think yours would be a spectacular performance. I think it's a great setting. And, and Shakespeare would have wanted that. I think he would have really liked the idea of having astronomy and the stars. And, and I think what is really important when you have these cross-gender roles is we are conscious we are watching a play and they are roles. These are actors. And Shakespeare was not into the kind of realist representation that we see today, that, oh, this, these are real women. He's just showing people playing roles. Um, and misogyny is an attitude that will be foregrounded when a woman speaks Leontes word because they seem forced and realistic. And I've seen quite a few productions over the years with a single gender, and it changes the play completely. I saw a Richard III with an all-female cast, so, you know, history plays are very male plays, but when you have women playing the historical figures, the minor characters of the women and the queens become more foregrounded. Uh, so I think Shakespeare, you know, he was very interested in, you know, we can talk more about this in a gender crossing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask, what does it mean to see an all-female version um, when in Shakespeare's time, it would have been performed by performed women. by men. Yeah. I think one of the things that I always have to stress, given the kinds of films we see today, that Shakespeare's characters should never be viewed according to the standards of psychological realism, but to always 
playing a part to some extent. And I think he had a very histrionical, theatrical sense of character and identity. You know, the cliche, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are players. I think he really believed that. Uh, so that is why he had double cross-dressing, boys playing women playing boys, you know, in Twelfth Night, for instance. And, and you can have a lot of fun. And so having all women is a version of all men in a, in a, in a way, which is, which is a, another version of all men. He's reversing the role. So when you are playing all women, you are, in a way, doing a Shakespearean kind of turnaround from the all male stage. And I think also, you know, we are very interested in gender and sexuality today. And in his plays and plays of the period, gender roles were very prescriptive in social terms, you know, sermons and priests and so forth. But sexuality, sexual orientation, and desire were seen in much more fluid terms than our so-called liberal society. I think heterosexual, homosexual, trans, non-binary sexuality were all explored through cross-dressing. And I would urge you to read these plays. Uh, they were not at all heteronormative. And I think there was no boundaries between heterosexual, homosexual in their thinking. So it was, we think we are very liberated and everybody's backward, but I think if you read the plays closely, he had a very fluid notion of desire, sexuality. And in his own life, most people think, you know, believe he was bisexual. He wrote sonnets to this man. Uh, you know, he was married to his wife, whom he didn't see very much of, I think. Uh, so this is something that your production will highlight uh, as do other single gender productions. Um, so given your expertise on both feminist and post-colonial theory, do you think that by having an all-female cast, we are in a way sort of recolonize the play? Um, and how does it complicate a feminist reading of the play? I think that um, in a way what you're doing is you're reappropriating the play in feminist ways so that Leontes is feminized as a woman. And he and Hermione have equal power in a sense, you know, when you see two women. Uh, when you see Shakespeare's plays in all male or all female cast, the whole experience of gender changes. I think post-colonial uh, theory applies more to plays like Othello and The Tempest, uh, where there is uh, cross-racial actors. But I would like to stress that post-colonial theory now applies to a lot of modern productions of Shakespeare, because the casting, at least in England, is all cross-racial. You know, you have actors of all ethnicities and colors playing roles. So that is why I'm interested in sort of global post-colonial Shakespeare's and places like the MIT website you're talking about. And there's a whole new subfield called Global Shakespeare's. So when I was doing this work, this is, I should say, when I was doing this work like 10, 15 years ago, it was considered like, what are you doing? And suddenly it's become trendy. Uh, and I think that's a reflection of our time. So your production would be just what he'd want. So do you think um, the given nature of the show and its characters' attitudes towards women, specifically Leontes in the first three acts, is it um, socially conscious to produce today? Well, I'm going to criticize modern television here a bit. <laughs> I think a lot of popular culture representations of gender relations, misogyny, female desire in popular culture, in television, in film, is really simplistic and stereotypical. Whereas I think 
Renaissance drama is even more adaptable to our times in different settings as it offers us a more complex view of social attitudes and misogyny than we get in a lot of popular television. That's why they had, they had a production of Julius Caesar with Donald Trump in it, you know. Uh, and it, it didn't quite work apparently, but, you, you know, kind of you had the sort of blustering ruler or something. Uh, so you have, uh, you know, in, in Shakespeare's plays, you have uh, very uh, kind of enabling, empowering productions that can really teach us more about gender relations and female desire and male desire and trance and bisexuality and homoeroticism, all the things we are talking about today, I think are very simplistically represented in popular culture. I, I don't think that we are sexually moved beyond our puritanical views too much. I think we are still we are still seeing people in boxes. You know, you are this and you are this, and then you can't say something else. Shakespeare didn't put people in boxes. His, and not only Shakespeare, other Renaissance plays. Uh, sexuality, desire, gender roles were much more fluid, flexible, while he was very critical of sexual assault and sexual harassment and power and men murdering their wives. Uh, but I think the overall picture is far better than a lot of stuff you see on TV. I'm sure there will be people who will challenge me on this. All right. Well, we have one last question for you today. If you could have dinner with any character from The Winter's Tale, who would it be and what would you say to them? I would like to have dinner and a glass of wine with <laughs> Paulina and Hermione together at the end. And I was thinking, I was talking of a particular production I'd seen in India outside in a, in a park and that just sit and, and chat with them. And maybe we could call the aunties to join us, you know, because it is about <laughs> redemption and reconciliation. And I think I would want to know where Hermione had been and why was forgiveness and reconciliation important and maybe what Leontes had to say to them. I think that would be my ideal dinner. Yeah. I would love to be there. That sounds great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was such a great discussion we had with you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Jotsa's latest book, Shakespeare and Postcolonial Theory, is available now for purchase from Bloomsbury Book Depository and Amazon. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other exciting events, please visit Michigan State University's Department of Theater at theater.msu.edu. This is Derek McNish. Your hosts today are Taylor McPhail and Heidi Covinia. Our guest was Josna Singh. The music was composed by Mason Menzel. Today's podcast was written by Taylor McPhail. Our audio engineer was Daniel Trago. Thank you to Hadley Kamingapek for research assistance. Thank you to Daniel Trago and to Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters for producing this podcast. <laughs>